0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is uh, Julian Villar, and I am an emergency physician, and intensive care physician. I work with Justin at Kaiser Oakland. And um, Justin asked me to do this lecture uh, about eight weeks Before I raced in Ironman, New Zealand, which was about three weeks ago. Um, And um, so I spent those last eight weeks leading up to the race um, thinking about and learning about and sort of of becoming more immersed in the science of exercise physiology as I went through the training process. So this is sort of where this title comes from. Um, But don't worry, it's not going to be all about me. uh, I've injected a few sort of personal examples of my own experience that sort of drive some of these concepts home. It is going to be sort of an oversimplified reduction of very complex metabolic and sort of call your pulmonary physiology processes. Um, Okay, so um, no conflicts, no disclosures. I don't take money from anybody. Um, um, The first thing I'd like to say is that you definitely do not have to be a Greek goddess or a Greek god to be successful in endurance sports. Okay, Um, This lady beat me in New Zealand um, just a few weeks ago. Okay. Uh, being successful at endurance sports is all about efficiency. Okay. And specifically it's about efficiently, uh, putting biologic fuels like sugar and oxygen together at the same time, um, and efficiently harnessing the energy of that combustion and turning that into miles and ultimately into sort of whatever sort of Victory or, or uh, outcome that you set for yourself. Okay, so today's lecture is going to really going to focus on um, practical, physiologic concepts about heart function, lung function, and energy metabolism that you can take to your next training session tomorrow or the next day um, and put into practice immediately. Okay, um, and just a, a, a quick caveat here is that this is going to be focusing on only a few organ systems. In reality is that every single organ system in the body is involved in the stresses of a true endurance event. Um, And we won't be discussing many of them. We'll be focusing on the heart, lungs, and energy metabolism. Um, And we certainly won't be discussing the brain, which is extremely important, right? Like, psychology is extremely important, and we won't be touching on that at all. And also, please keep in mind that this is specifically designed for sort of the principles that we're going to be talking about, the lessons here are for endurance events and endurance athletes. Sprinters and powerlifters. An- another whole sort of different set of principles apply. Okay, So we'll be covering um, muscle cell energy use, heart functioning and oxygen delivery, a little bit about lung function, and then to t- one or two words about, about gut function, which is important. If we have time or if there's interest at the end, um, we can talk about VO2 max and heart rate monitors. Um, that I, I will, I'll, I'll be talking about heart rate monitors a lot through the course of this lecture because I think they're really important for endurance events and endurance training. Uh, but we can talk more about it later if, if you'd like. Okay. So these are the key take-home points from this lecture. Okay. If you want to zone out for the rest of the lecture, please go ahead. But these are sort of the key things that I'd like you to remember. Okay. So it's all about efficiency. Glucose depletion is what causes fatigue. So if you feel exhausted during a workout, it's because your glucose is low. At the beginning of a workout, it's really important to start slowly and build your intensity. Okay? This, this is really important to avoiding depletion of your energy supplies. Likewise, at the beginning of a training regimen or a training block, really important to go slowly. Okay? This teaches your body to use fats and complex carbohydrates. During long rides or long endurance events, really important to eat. If you can, take some time to train at altitude. Okay. Use heart rate all the time. I use heart rate during ev- almost every single one of my workouts, okay? This keeps you in the aerobic zone, it keeps you from fatiguing too, too quickly, and if used correctly, it can clue you in to being dehydrated, okay. Fluids are more than water. You need salt and sugar to absorb fluids, okay? You drink water by itself, it's not gonna do anything, okay. And finally, if you're breathing too fast or you're working too hard. Anybody know what this is? Justin, what is this? It's, it's mitochondria. mitochondria. Okay, this is a subcellular structure. Its present in essentially every human cell—not every not every cell, but most human cells. Okay. This is where uh, the body, where cells turn oxygen and fuels into a form of energy that the body can use. Okay, this form of energy is called ATP. We'll mention it again in a second. But this is sort of this is the business end of endurance sports. Okay. This is where it all happens. Most of what we're going to be talking about in, for, the next, for the rest of the lecture happens inside the mitochondria. Okay? Um, my, muscle fibers, muscle cells, are littered with mitochondria. Okay? One of the sort of first interesting training adaptations um, is that over a course of about two months of training and training correctly, the, the mass, the total volume of mitochondria associated with muscle cells can double in your body. Okay? So really important. So this is ATP. This is energy cash, so to speak. Okay? This is the only form of energy that your muscles can use to do contraction. Okay? Every other form of energy that you consume has to be turned into ATP before it's useful for the body. All right? This is the basic structure of a muscle. Inside muscle fibers are these sort of long, extremely large proteins, these two types of proteins, actin and myosin, which sort of interweb themselves like this. And during muscle contraction, those proteins slide in and out in sort of this fashion. ATP is necessary. Its presence is required at that interface in order for muscle contraction to take place. No other molecule, no other form of energy can take its place. Without ATP, there is no muscle contraction. The problem is that ATP is actually quite scarce. The resting concentrations of ATP in the cell is very, very, very low. Okay, and ATP is required for essentially every single other biologic function in the body. Okay, from making new DNA to sort of normal housekeeping uh, functions of the cell to building more proteins, in addition to muscle contraction. Okay? Also making ATP is quite complex. Okay? It is, in fact, the biggest limit to endurance, is the, the synthesis of new ATP. Okay? Um, so getting better and being more efficient at making new ATP is really at the heart of endurance sports and is really at the heart of what, those, what the rest of this lecture is all about. Okay? Uh, one of the most important things in making ATP effectively is choosing the right fuel. So these are the two primary fuel sources for uh, for uh, most for any muscle cell and definitely for endurance sports. Um, uh, carbohydrates or sugars, uh, specifically glucose, is the most commonly used here on the left, or I'm sorry, on the left, and then fats or trigly- triglycerides um, on, the other, on the other side. Amino acids can be used as a fuel source, but it's extremely inefficient. It's really not preferred, and we really won't be talking about it today at all. Okay? We'll be focusing on fats and carbohydrates. So um, glucose or carbohydrates can be turned into ATP in two ways: uh, an anaerobic metabolism, which happens in the absence of oxygen. For every glucose molecule that's metabolized anaerobically, you can make two ATP molecules. Okay? In addition, as a side product or as a waste product, you make lactate, okay? which is that that gives you that nice burning sensation in your legs when you're going up a, a steep climb. Okay. Um, in contrast, if you metabolize glucose in the presence of oxygen, we call it aerobic metabolism, for each molecule of glucose that you burn, you can make 30 ATPs. Okay. So much more efficient. All right. And no lactate is produced as a side product. Okay. So great. So we're going to use glucose and we're going to do it aerobically. Awesome. Okay, There's not that much glucose available. Okay. In your bloodstream, at any one moment, There is only about 12 calories worth of glucose circulating in your bloodstream at any one moment, assuming you're not diabetic. But even if you are diabetic and sort of normal glucose is about 100, call it, and your glucose is 300, that's still only 36 calories of glucose in your bloodstream at any one at any one moment. Okay. Um, But we don't pass out and die at every moment when we walk up the street, right, Or, or or sprint uphill. So your body's quite well adapted at storing glucose as this other molecule called glycogen. And the liver and the and and muscle tissues, um, glycogen uh, is more abundant. Uh, approximately like two thousands calories worth of glycogen in a normal human body at any one time, adult body at any one time. Um, your muscles will use glycogen that are that's present in the muscle tissues immediately. Your liver is quite adept at making new sugar and specifically breaking off chunks of this glycogen in or. Uh, breaking off chunks chunks of glucose into sorry from glycogen and then spitting it out into the bloodstream, sort of circulates around. Okay? But this process takes time. All right, the process of revving up the machinery, getting it ready to go to start breaking down glycogen and spitting it out into the bloodstream, um, it, it takes time. And the pro- the actual process of breaking it off and throwing it out in the, into the bloodstream is slow. Okay, so even though burning glucose aerobically is much more efficient than burning it anaerobically. The reality is that there's a limited supply of glucose in the bloodstream and that the replacement supply from glycogen is a little bit slow. Okay. All right, what about fat? So remember that for every glucose molecule that's metabolized aerobically, we make about 30 ATPs. For every free fatty acid, so fats are stored as triglycerides, which are three of these chains, and then they're broken down into free fatty acids, which is one of these chains, okay, long carbon chains. For every free fatty acid, you can burn in the presence of oxygen, you can make approximately 108 molecules of ATP. So this is wildly more efficient, okay, wildly better source of fuel than than glucose by itself, okay, and no um, no uh, lactate is produced as a side product, okay, so. At the beginning of a, of a workout, call it in the first 10 minutes, the first few seconds you get on your bike and start riding, your body uses ATP that's already available, preformed ATP. Okay? Um, there's not much of it. After about 10 seconds, all the preformed ATP is essentially depleted. So you have to start using glucose that's available in the blood. Okay? And 12 calories, you know, this will last you about a minute, a minute of sort of like reasonable level of exertion. So after about a minute, all the glucose available in the bloodstream is gone. So starting about 30 seconds in, your body tunes in, your body's quite astute, says, no, you know, we're running out of glucose soon, we better start using glycogen. So the muscle will start breaking down its own native glycogen, liver will start breaking down its glycogen and spitting out into the bloodstream. Okay? So in about between one and five minutes, you start using more glucose from glycogen. And then about five minutes after that, about maybe five to ten minute period into your workout, Your fat metabolizing system finally wakes up, starts kicking up up the cogwebs, gets in the game, so to speak. But it takes about five to ten minutes for this most efficient form of energy to become available for you to use. If you go too quickly too soon, too hard, too fast at the beginning of the workout, you deplete your ATP and available circulating blood glucose before the other systems can come online, and then you buck. Okay? And this is when you crash. This is that the sort of metabolic bunk that people talk about. You feel terrible. You're vomiting on the side of the sideway. Your, your coach making fun of you. you know, your wife makes fun of you because you have a wet butt. So the, 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 the key thing to avoid here is going out too hard, too fast, and these, things, these are the reasons why. Okay? Um, so just to re- recap, then, glucose depletion equals fatigue. When you feel fatigued, it's because you have glucose depletion. Okay? Also, please remember that you are in no risk of running out of fat during a single bout of exercise. There is endless flat available even for the fittest people around. Okay? So training tip number one, avoid going full throttle. Okay? At the beginning of a workout especially, start slow. Warm up. Let those complex metabolic systems sort of come online and start being able to be more efficient and use better sources of fuel. Um, the next point I'm going to make is related but slightly different. Okay? Um, this graph illustrates essentially uh, exercise intensity on the x-axis and the type of fuel used on the y-axis. So at low exercise intensity, um, sort of here closer to this side of the, of the graph, your body will use primarily fat and a very little amount of, of glucose. As you increase the level of intensity, your body will start using more and more glucose until you get to a point where you use as the same amount of fat and glucose. And then if you push it further, you're going to use more glucose than fat. Okay? That point where, where, where the, the balance tips, where your body goes from using mostly fat to using mostly glucose, is critically important. They okay? call that the glucose crossover point. Okay? Intentionally training at a level of intensity just below the glucose crossover point is really, really, really useful for endurance athletes. Okay, over time, if you do this correctly, a very interesting thing happens: your body becomes more adept at metabolizing fat, and you can go at higher and higher intensities, by, but still remain in the primarily fat metabolizing part of it. Okay, but you have to sort of purposefully train your body to do this. You have to stay below the crossover point during your training rides or training your training runs in order to trigger your body's to learn to be more efficient at burning fats, okay? So training tip number two. At the beginning of a training regimen, go slow. This teaches your body to become more efficient at using fats. All right, so this graph illustrates your energy utilization over, instead of over the first five minutes of a workout, over several hours of workout, okay? So time on the x-axis and type of energy utilized on the y-axis. And notice that as the time goes on, your muscle glycogen goes away completely, uh, and then uh, plasma-free fatty acids, so fat circulating in the bloodstream becomes the primary, like the, the preferred um, uh, source of fuel. But also notice that your, your blood glucose levels, sort of the, the amount of blood glucose that your body increases, uses starts going up. As glycogen decreases, the amount of blood glucose that you have to use starts going up. Okay? Remember that we talked about that there's not a lot of blood glucose circulating in your bloodstream, okay? Your liver has to work extra hard to make up that difference, all right? So the more, the longer you go, the glycogen stores get depleted. Your liver has to make, work harder to produce more glucose to be available in the bloodstream, and the faster your total reserves of glucose go away. So in order to combat this, very key thing is to replace or supplement your body's glucose stores during your training okay, or during your workouts. So training tip number three is you have to eat. There's nothing more important, in my opinion, than adequate nutrition during long bouts of exercise. It'll keep you fresher or going longer. So most of you guys or most of us in this room know this already, right? This is obvious from our own experience that this is true. But this is the reason why. Okay. okay. So that's enough about sort of the metabolics. Um, We're not going to switch gears a little bit and talk about oxygen delivery. So um, because efficiently turning biologic fuels into ATP essentially requires the presence of oxygen, in addition to training your body to be efficient at sort of the metabolics of it, you have to train your body to be efficient at delivering oxygen to the tissues that need it. Okay? So there are two major components involved in oxygen delivery. The first one is sort of how much oxygen can your blood carry? This is governed by red blood cells, OK? Um, it, the gr- drug, or sort of drug EPO, uh, stimulates the production of red blood cells. This is sort of the concept behind EPO use in, in, uh, in sort of, sorry, by Lance Armstrong and other endurance athletes. Uh, it's the same sort of concept behind blood doping. The more red blood cells you have, the more oxygen you can deliver to your end tissues. Okay? Um, I don't advocate that any of you guys blood dope or use EPO, but you know training at altitude does give you some of the same stimuli that using EPO does. So it will trigger your body to, to, to make and produce more red blood cells. So training tip number four, if you can, take time to train at altitude. Okay. The other major component in oxygen delivery is uh, how much blood can your heart pump. Okay. So this is an ultrasound of a healthy volunteer's heart. Um, we're looking primarily at the left ventricle, which is the main pumping vessel. Sorry, main pumping chamber in the heart. Um, a couple of things to point out. Number one is that the heart has to fill with blood in order to pump, right? Um, uh, and then the other sort of couple of things to point out is that uh, you can you can sort of see very quickly that if the heart pumps faster, there will be more blood going out. Okay? Similarly, if the blood is able to fill, the heart is able to fill more and pump more blood each time it beats, there will be more oxygen delivered to the tissues. Okay? So those are the two components of cardiac output. We call, the, we call the blood flow leaving the heart cardiac output. Two major components are heart rate and then stroke volume, which is how much blood is pumped out during each, each, um, each beat. Okay? Um, heart rate and to some degree stroke volume is proportional to oxygen demand. So we're all sitting here at rest. Our heart rate is low. As soon as we start increasing our level of effort, your oxygen demand at your end tissues increases, and this triggers a a response by your heart to pump faster, okay? And this is directly linked. So the the more oxygen demand, the higher the heart rate. This is true to some degree as well with stroke volume. So uh, in this graph, uh, the lowest, the yellow line here are sedentary college, college athletes that are untrained, okay? And note that as you increase the level of intensity on the x-axis, their stroke volume can increase somewhat, just during that specific training event. Okay? So as you work harder, your heart pumps faster and pumps harder. Okay? But also note that over time with training, you can, your heart will pump more blood. Okay? Your heart it will t- it'll take less effort for your heart to pump more and more blood per stroke. And so if you sort of a priori target a specific heart rate, you're like, I'm going to stick to this heart rate for the next four hours. Um, and you do that every day or every sort of week for three or four months. By the end of those four months, even at that same heart rate, your body will be pumping more blood at the same heart rate than at the beginning of the training. Okay? So your body adapts. It's, it, it's stronger at pumping blood. Okay, okay so this is probably my, my favorite part of the lecture uh, which is that you can tell a lot about your level of hydration based on your heart rate. Okay? So we spoke a little bit earlier about how your body, your blood, your blood, heart needs to fill in order to pump. Right? If it doesn't fill enough because your blood volume is low and you're dehydrated, um, it will be unable to pump as much blood with every beat and will adapt. It will say, okay, I can't pump as much blood with every beat, but one thing I can do is I can pump harder. I'm sorry, pump faster. Okay. So if, um, if you notice that you're on a, on a training ride or on a ride and you notice that your heart rate is higher than you expect it to be for a given level of effort, and I'm not going that fast, why is my heart rate so high? It may be because you're dehydrated. Okay. Um, similarly, and a little bit more granularly, is that your heart rate may jump around. You may go 140, 147, 150, 152, 140. So what's going on, what are the, or what are these big jumps all about? Okay. This is another, actually, I think that's a better clue that you're dehydrated, okay. and this is why. So this is the heart rate tracing of a healthy volunteer after a long endurance event. So notice that you know, there are peaks here that are very big, and then there are peaks that are very, very small. Uh, what's happening here is that the, the heart is filling differently over time. So during the big peaks, the, the heart fills well with blood. There's lots of blood pumped out. During the small peaks, the heart does not fill as well, and there is less blood pumped out. And your heart rate monitor, it's usually either on your wrist or on your, on your chest, connected to your skin, gets a little bit confused. Okay? So what it's sensing is it's sensing a smaller signal. Less blood flow to the skin, it gets a smaller signal. Okay? And it interprets that as being, it gets a little confused, and it sort of displays on your, on your wrist that... The heart rate is sort of going up and down, up and down, up and down. Okay, so that's what's happening here. If you take this person, this healthy volunteer, with sort of, sort of physiologic dehydration after a long-endurance event, and then you give them a bunch of Gatorade and have them go to sleep for a while, the next day that goes away completely. Okay? So I'm seeing a little bit of sort of like dubious faces in the audience here. Um, this works. Okay? Proof that this works is one of my patients I had in the ICU uh, a little while ago. This is the same physiologic principle. We're, say, we're using a slightly different sensor. This is an arterial line. It's supposed to heart rate monitor. But this is the same physiologic principle. Note that, the, that the, the, the wave sort of gets bigger and gets smaller and gets bigger and smaller. This is a patient that's in shock from bad infection, and they're dehydrated. And we saw this, and we gave them a bunch of fluid, and their shock got better. So pulse, this is called pulse pressure variability. But heart rate vari- variability, if you notice heart rate variability, I guarantee that you're dehydrated. Drink fluids, and you will feel stronger. Okay. Next point is that your heart is a muscle, like any other muscle, and it fatigues. Okay. So the sort of the sum up for heart rate is that heart rate in training and racing is really, really important for a variety of reasons. It keeps your heart from fatiguing, number one. It keeps you in the aerobic zone. We'll talk about that in a second, number two. It keeps you from going too fast, too hard, and having a metabolic bunk. Um, it keeps blood flowing in your gut, and we 'll talk about that in a second as well and then it can clue you in to dehydration so lots lots here about heart rate, so what heart rate is the heart rate that we should be targeting okay. Two large or two uh, very commonly used ways of estimated sort of optimum heart rate for you um, the most the simplest one is the math method, and simply your Optimum heart rate is 180 minus your age. So I'm thirty-five, so this gives me a math heart rate about one forty five. This is what I use for cycling. It's a little bit low for me for running. I usually go about one fifty-five for running. Remember that these this, like the other one I'll mention in a second, these are estimates, okay? Um and they're not perfect. Uh so it's uh, maximum aerobic fitness. Um it's really that the guy that invested it, invent, invented it, his name is like mafitone or something like that. So he sort of smudge it as best he could to make it make it close to his name um the the more granular approach to estimating your optimum heart rate is called you know heart rate zones or and it's based primarily on what your maximum heart rate may be um, the first step in figuring this out is you have to figure out what your maximum heart rate is so you can estimate that by with a simple calculation of being two, of 220 minus your age um, you can also try this out yourself, right? You can get a heart monitor, get on the bike, or get on the, on the treadmill and go as hard as you can for about 20 minutes, and the highest heart rate you get, that's your maximum heart rate. Okay? And each of these training zones are dependent on a fraction or a proportion of your maximum heart rate. So for most endurance athletes, the optimum training zone for aerobic fitness is anywhere between 60 and 80% of your maximum heart rate. Um, usually, people say about seventy five percent of your maximum heart rate is sort of like where you want to be best. lower than that you're you 're training your body to be better at burning fat so on training workouts that you want specifically to be about being more efficient at fat metabolism go lower go about sixty percent of your maximum heart rate. Training workouts that you are really really want to focus on. Um, maximizing your, your sort of your vo2 max, which you can talk about later, or maximizing your speed, you want to go higher, so you know ninety percent one hundred percent all out okay. so I think this is a better approach. it gives you more granularity, sort of wider range of options to target specific out- training outcomes all right so i 'll talk a little bit about shunting because it's it 's um, it's relevant here so shunting is just the word we use in medicine to describe the process by which blood gets uh, gets directed to one, one organ system versus another. Okay? Um, during exercise, your body will redirect blood towards the muscles that are working and away from the gut. And this shunt is proportional to the level of effort. So at low levels of effort, there will be very little shunting away from the gut. The gut will get plenty of blood flow. At higher levels of effort, okay, your, uh, or maximum effort, submaximal effort, your gut gets essentially no blood flow. Okay. Who cares? Why is this important? Well, a couple of reasons. They're all sort of centered on the fact that your gut, like any other organ system in the body, needs oxygen and blood flow to live and to do its gut thing. Okay. Um, water is not actively absorbed. Okay. Water is absorbed only through osmosis. It require, requires the active absorption of salt and sugar in the gut in order to sort of pull water uh, after it passively. Um, salt and sugar absorption are an, are ATP-dependent, are energy-dependent, okay? So in the absence of blood flow to the gut, there's no ATP being generated in gut cells. You can't absorb salt. You can't absorb sugar. And therefore, you can't absorb water, okay? So keeping a, a balance... Um, Preventing excessive shunting of blood away from the gut is critically important to be able to continue to absorb nutrients and fluids throughout a long endurance event. Okay. Also, please remember that free water is not enough. You need salt and you need sugar in the, your gut at the same time along with water in order to be able to absorb volume. So, you know, Things like Gatorade and Powerade, for me, they're too sweet, but they are effective. Um, I prefer Isostar actually is my my, my preferred sort of um, energy drink, uh, and noon is quite good as well. Okay. And then remember to not overdo it in terms of level of effort. A quick word about the lungs. Okay, the lungs are my colleagues in the ICU would hate me for saying this, or sort of a, quite a simple organ in the end. Okay, um, it's essentially a, a scheme of placing air as close together or as, ne- as close as possible with blood, Okay, or a very, very large surface area. All right? um, these uh, sacs are called alveoli, uh, and they're little air sacs, and the, sort of the, the capillaries, the blood, the blood vessels wrap around them in a, in a high surface area sort of way. Okay, um, And as blood flows through these capillaries uh, next to the air sacs, uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, which is a waste gas, gets uh, pulled out of the bloodstream and into the air sac, and oxygen gets pulled from the airspace and into the bloodstream. Okay? And to some degree, to a large degree, this process is dependent on how fast you breathe. Okay? So the faster you breathe, the more gas exchange takes place. But your respiratory muscles, your chest wall, your diaphragm, are muscles, like any other muscles, and they require blood flow. So if you're breathing hard, okay you're going to have more blood flow shunted towards the respiratory muscles and away from the muscles of propulsion. This is actually really important. We use this principle in the ICU a lot. When we are worried about a patient that is breathing too fast, so fast that there's not enough blood available to to go to the rest of the body, we take away their work of breathing. We put them to sleep and we put a breathing tube in simply because they're breathing too hard. Okay? the sort of the last training tip is that if you're breathing fast, you're probably working too hard. So uh, to summarize then, it's all about efficiency. Glucose depletion is a source of fatigue. This is what makes you feel tired is when your glucose is, is low. Um, avoiding overly aggressive starts is really important in ensuring that you don't deplete your sugar too fast. Uh, starting your training regimen or your training block is um, at a low level of intensity will train your body to be more efficient at burning fats and complex carbohydrates. Make sure to eat during long bouts of endurance training. Train at altitude if you can. Uh, use heart rate. I can't say this enough. Use heart rate in your racing and your training. Really, really important. Uh, please make sure to drink fluids with salt and sugar. And then if you're, if you're going too fast to be able to have a conversation, you're probably working too hard. Okay. All right. Thank you. Any questions? Yes, sir. Um, just sort of a couple, but is there a line where you define endurance as starting? Um, yeah, I, there, there is a line. Um, and I think that, um, so not being an expert on a sort of cardiopulmonary endurance physiology, my understanding from my reading is that people usually describe endurance at about an hour's worth of, of exercise. Okay, okay. And is there a... Is there a point at which you don't need fluid if you're only going to ride for a uh, certain amount of time? Would that be an hour or? It's a great question. Um, as a as somebody who is particularly sweaty, you know, I would I would say that I err on the side of having too much fluids with me as opposed to too little. Um, you know, my my wife, who's an endurance runner, would would usually would probably make fun of me for saying that I'm bringing water along on anything that's less than two or three hours. So it sort of very depends very much on. On what you sort of have experienced for yourself in the past, my advice would be that that the two hours is about the limit. More than two hours, you should really be consuming fluids aggressively from the beginning. So, it's only a two-hour ride or a two-hour run, like half marathon. You probably don't really need to be consuming throughout throughout that. But if you're planning on going further than two hours, I would start early. Don't wait until the two-hour mark to start consuming. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for all the information. Yeah. Uh, I have two questions. Could you comment on the pros and cons of using uh, antioxidants and again, mitochondrial adaptation to endurance events? Yeah. And the second one is the pros and cons of using a bicycle power meter oh. at, uh, in more of the American department. Sure, sure, sure. So um, regarding antioxidants, what I can say is that I I don't know the data or the evidence behind sort of. Um, So antioxidants are molecules that are commonly found in nature whose sort of primary function is that it reduces the what we call oxidative stress associated with burning fuel. So when you burn glucose and and fats, um, you generate side products that can be toxic to the cells. Um, And antioxidants sort of scavenge these sort of toxic byproducts. Um, so there 's at least a hypothetical or sort of physiological argument to be made that if you introduce antioxidants, you sort of reduce the oxidative stress and cause less damage to the cells makes total sense i don 't know w- the, whether there's sort of large um, sample size data to suggest that in, in, in athletes that use antioxidants perform better or age less over time. Um, I do know that in in medicine antioxidants have been tried in, in, uh, in uh, uh, populations that have sur- suffered um, brain injury from lack of oxygen uh, and have not been shown to improve brain recovery. So so the medical community, or at least in this sort of very specific area, infers that antioxidants, though they work in theory, don't convey any medical benefit. Those two, two things are very different. That's just the best I know. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Regarding power meters. yeah. So I think that... Um, uh, power meters will um, uh, work just as well as heart rate monitors if used correctly. Um, the, the issue with the power meter, in my opinion, is that it doesn't tell you about how well your body is tolerating the effort that you're doing. Right? It, it gives you very specific information about how much effort you're doing, but it doesn't give you any information as to how well your body is tolerating it. In my, in my view, the reason why I like heart rate so much is that it's a sort of very clear uh, um, auto-feedback about how your body is tolerating the effort. Um, the higher your heart rate goes, the higher the effort you're expending and reducing the level of effort, sort of targeting a specific heart rate range where you can maintain that same level of effort for hours and hours and hours, in my view, is sort of like the ultimate goal of endurance sports. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Absolutely. So, so the 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 question is based on an observation: the resting heart rate after a a high degree of uh, of stress is higher than you would expect, or certainly higher than when you're well rested. And the reason is pretty simple: your body continues to need higher levels of oxygen even after you're at rest. It needs higher levels of oxygen to repair, uh, to replenish its sort of resource and nutrient stores. Um, and probably to some degree your heart is tired And so it, it can't pump as much blood per beat so it has to pump faster to make up for it so a combination of uh, ongoing high metabolic demands even after you've stopped and heart fatigue yes sir, I'm, I'm so sorry I think you were first yeah. when you're training for a century or a multi-day ride at some point your training rides can get quite Yeah. you said to eat I mean, at what point do you you know, you're out five, six hours on a training ride. Yep. What point do you really need something more than the gels, the shot blocks, yep. and stuff like that? I mean, can you give us some guidance sure. on how often you really need to eat on those long rides and, and what do do? Sure, absolutely. So I'll tell you what I do. Um, I, I err on the side of eating complex foods. So foods that contain both fats, complex carbohydrates, and simple carbohydrates. So granola bars are my go-to. Um, and um, I eat um, on average approximately between 200 and 250 calories per hour. So I'm very specific about how I do it. So um, I will usually have something to eat. Um, my wife makes money for this all the time. I eat a big donut before going on a long training event or, or a training ride. Why, and, not. why not, right? <laughs> and then and then I start. You know, depending on you know depending on the, how, how small I cut the chunks of granola that day, for example, I'll have. Um, I'll eat every half hour or every hour, but I'll try to average about 200 to 250 calories per hour. So it sounds like you don't think too highly of the gels some of those, you know, products you get today. Sorry, I, I actually think that the, the gels are, like, the the, the engineering behind those gels is, is truly amazing. Like, the stuff that's in there is, is really good. The problem with the gels is primarily that they have, it's all simple carbohydrates, and not enough complex carbs, and, or and certainly no fat. And so you'll you'll you may have noticed that you have a gel. Ten minutes later, you feel great, and thirty minutes later, you're done. And it's because these sort of sugar swings go up and down, up and down, up and down. So something that like evens out the ride a little bit, I think, is better. So um, the granola bar sort of that I like, or you know, sometimes I make my own, um, has all of those different types of fuels. So I get the immediate benefit of the simple carbohydrates and then sort of a slow uptake of carbohydrates from my gut into my bloodstream so I don't get that crash afterwards. But right. that said, I, certainly for, for races, but sometimes also for really long training rides, I'll have a couple of gels with me because if I get into trouble, I feel like I'm bonking, I'll just pound one of those, and it'll shoot me back up right away. Yeah, good question. Thank you. Uh, I think there was one over here, yeah. So questions are I mean – the disclaimer of you not supporting on am sure. having to use one yeah. I'm kind of noticing it. You know, it uses all and using a hardware drive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there would be days where I would go on a you know, hard drive and it's got this prediction of are you are you uh, improving, are you maintaining? I'm getting a lot of unproductive is that do and I'm starting to test my HR yeah. HR feed. How accurate is, how much can you depend it or, or and, Back to the other different instructions. How do you know when you're pushing a subject dressing- Sure, sure, sure. Um, so what I would say is that the, the the heart rate monitors, especially the Garmin, has several features in addition to just measuring your heart rate and telling you where you are and how far you've gone. Um, one of those features is sort of race prediction. So it'll take um, you know, your past performances over the last sort of, you know, ten training days, and it'll give you, okay, you, for your next half marathon, I predict that you're going to do this well, okay? Um, what I would say to that is that I, I, I don't use that at all, okay? And I would sort of echo what Brad said earlier about emphasizing the process over in, over specific small outcomes. Um, I think that, you know, if you focus too much on, like, oh, I really need to get this workout to have this number so that I average and my risk predictor says that I'm going to do, like, you know, a 150 half marathon, I, I think that sort of is self-defeating um the, the there is some data on um uh uh heart rate monitors and predicting VO2 max. So v- VO2 max um uh do we have a little bit of time? Should we talk about VO2 max? Do you guys want to talk about VO2 max? yet? Okay. So VO2 max is is great. Um it it's uh, it is sort of widely considered the gold standard of um uh, endurance physiology, or, or met the gold standard measure of endurance physiology, how fit you are. Um, and it's, uh, it's done in a lab, in a physiology lab, either on a treadmill or on a bike. You get a face mask that that seals you in. Your, your face and your mouth get sealed in. Sometimes you'll see like a snorkel in the mouth at the nose plugs. But the point is that the machine that you're connected to controls and can measure exactly how much oxygen is giving you and exactly how much oxygen it's giving it's getting back during every breath. So therefore it knows how much oxygen you are consuming and turning into you know power output, okay? So it, it and and that's that's really what it is. That is literally the VO2 max. It is the maximum amount of oxygen that you can consume per unit time per unit of body weight, frequently expressed as actually mLs per minute per kilo. Um, and and the reason why it's sort of the ultimate measure of uh, cardiopulmonary fitness is that it takes into account all of the steps that, you have, that, you, have, that you, know, you have to go through in order to burn fuel at the source, okay? So air, oxygen has to enter the lungs, has to be dissolved into the bloodstream, has to bind blood cells, has to go to the heart, has to get pump to the, the blood vessels, has to go to the mitochondria, okay? So, it's there, so the sum measure of all of the steps I have to go through. Uh, so when you do a VO2 max test, um, what they do is they put you on the bike, they slap this thing on your face, and then they sort of do this graded increase in effort and intensity. So first you start out slow. It computes how much oxygen you're measuring. Then you increase, and then uh, your effort and it, you know, measures how much oxygen you're, you're, you're consuming. At, initially, every time you increase the level of effort, you consume more oxygen. And then it gets to a point where no matter how much more you increase your level of effort, you cannot consume more oxygen. That is your VO2 max. That is a point at which your body is unable to burn more fuel and consume more oxygen. Um, The higher that level is, the fitter you are. Um, The fittest people on earth tend to be cross-country skiers, and the reason is that cross-country skiing... Takes like you know large numbers of muscle groups: your upper body, your torso, your lower body. They're all involved in propelling you down a cross country run. So the amount of muscle consuming oxygen is very high, right? And so it consumes more oxygen than anybody else. So, uh, uh, Long distance runners being sort of the second category, and then and the cyclists after that. Um, it, for some sort of sense. Um, you know, women, sort of superior women in their 20s and 30s, their VO2 max will be somewhere in uh, in the high 40s. Um, for um, uh, uh, for sort of men, the, the number is slightly higher. So for, for men, it's usually like, you know, for superior athletes in the mid to high 50s. Um, and then... For truly exceptional athletes like Lionel Strong's 's v o two max was like eighty five or something like that you know? yeah, so just like ridiculously high numbers. The highest ever measured I think was about hundred in a cross country skier, so just to give you an idea of sort of what the numbers mean okay. um, and uh, garmin the garmin watch this is, this is the same watch I have actually will will do computation it will estimate based on the parameters has at its disposal, which are primarily your age, your weight, and then your heart rates over the last several episodes of training, it will estimate what it, what your your VO2max may be that day. Okay, um, And there's one study I found that actually tried to compare the estimate from the heart rate monitor to the actual VO2max test. And it found that in general, the, the watches overestimate your VO2max Okay, um, as compared to the actual test. Um, the Garmin models with the chest strap will overestimate your VO2 max by about 0.5 to 1. So that's actually quite good, right? It's like that difference is not that big. Um, I also don't tend to use this very frequently. It's sort of every once in a while, it'll, it'll yell at me. It's like, oh, new VO2 max. It's, it's sort of interesting. But I don't use it as a, a training goal or tra- training metric. Any questions about VO2 max? I but yeah, we'll have time for one more question. Stop, uh, sure. Uh, sorry. Is there any proof that changing what you eat is is beneficial? Because I've been eating Cliff Bars for yeah. all this time, and uh, was in a situation where the only thing was available was a power bar, uh-huh. and I thought I got more of a boost. And I wonder, is there any? Just like your your body gets used to one kind of drug or medicine, and yeah, uh. it's a it's an interesting question. I I would say that. If you're going to get benefit from changing sort of the source of fuel, for example, it'll be in a stress way. So your body will sort of freak out for a second and try to adapt, and then it'll be better the next time. Um, I, uh, your experience sounds to me like maybe the Power Bar had more free sugar in it, um, and you may have just gotten a bigger boost at the beginning from it. I don't know. That's a, that's a um, sort of speculation. Yeah. Last question. 50%. Yeah. As a performance of the answer. Okay. So if you're doing a fourteen hour and you want to do a morning ride before <coughs> going to work, am I going to want destroy my heart? I mean it's like what do you do with these yeah. the two dialogically yeah. opposed um, or there's a crossover? I would say that um uh I I th- I would say that the the benefit of intermittent fasting is that it makes your body dependent on fat essentially at all times. Okay. So it optimizes your body to be, to fat, to be fat adapted. Okay. In that sense, it is great for endurance training. Okay. Um, but if you've sort of intermittently fasted for a week and then on Saturday you try to go for a five-hour ride, you're going to bonk simply because you're, you're, uh, the glycogen storage in your, in your muscles are depleted. Okay. So what I would say is f- intermittently fast on maybe Thursday of that week, eat on Friday, eat, and then you'll be good to go on Saturday. Cool. And then, so a couple, there's been a, uh, this will be sort of my last comment. It's been a few comments and sort of starting with the last lecture and then here about, you know, are you going to have a problem? Is there so much, such a thing as too much training for your heart? So my, my take on this is that some people are predisposed to arrhythmias or other sort of heart anomalies, and you sort of hear the story of the athlete, high school athlete on a basketball court collapses and sort of dies all of a sudden. And those those people have something wrong with their heart to begin with. Okay, I've never seen somebody give themselves heart failure from working out too much. All right, I've seen a couple people give them some heart failure from performance enhancing drugs associated with working out, but not from the not from the effort itself. Okay, I've never seen somebody come in and is like. I have heart failure today because I've been training for an Ironman. That just doesn't happen. Okay? So I echo Brad's point from earlier, you train more. You'll be fine. Your heart will be fine. Cool. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.